Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, this is the third week of our sermon series, Easter Encounters, a sermon series for Eastertide. If you're just joining us, we've been looking at some of the experiences that the first disciples had with the risen Jesus. We began with Mary Magdalene's Eastern encounter at the empty tomb and why it seems that Jesus appeared to her first. And then last week we saw where Jesus catches up with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. For seven miles, we saw Jesus explain how the Old Testament foretold that Christ would suffer, die, and be raised from the dead. And he gave these two disciples a Christocentric understanding of the Scriptures before revealing himself at the table when he broke bread in their home. And one of the lessons and theological truths that we saw in this, this episode was that the Lord doesn't want his disciples to recognize him by sight anymore, but rather get used to encountering him in the scriptures and in the table, which I'd like to invite us to do this morning as we read from John chapter 20 and explore that a bit before we end our service with communion. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, verse 19 through 29, and stand with me as we read from our inspired scriptures together. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can simply listen as I read. John chapter 20, verse 19 through 29. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, They are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where, where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. 
Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to God. You may be seated. As sons of the Enlightenment and daughters of modernity, we can all appreciate the story of Thomas. Because like Thomas, we want empirical evidence. We want good rational reasons for believing that something is worth believing, right? We are products of the Enlightenment. We are rational, logical, thinking people. No matter how many of our friends may believe something, we want to be convinced of the truth ourselves before we join the crowd. At least we think we all do that. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think that's how it works, but we think that. So we can relate to this story about Thomas. Of course, we, unlike ancient Jews, seem to be unaware that there are plenty of things upon which we base our lives, deep convictions, mind you, which cannot be proven. For example, how do you prove objective morals and values, especially in a culture that operates according to its feelings. Well, I feel that what you're doing is wrong. Well, I feel what I'm doing is right. What do we do with that? A culture that has a hard time saying there is an objective truth, the morality and values that govern us all. But how do you prove that? How do you prove that we should all be treated with human dignity? This is the conundrum that American society is in that's all amped up about justice as we should be, but without a moral lawgiver, without objective truth, which our culture can't really get its mind around, we're doomed. How do you prove that God created the world and will one day redeem it? Right? How, how do you prove historical claims? Maybe a year or two, 10 years, 20 years ago, maybe, you know, that's not, not too difficult to do, but what, about 100 years or 200 years or 2,000 years? How do you prove it? Can you really prove anything? How do you know that you're even really here this morning? I mean, some people have these philosophical conversations, right? Like, or maybe they're all part of the, the matrix. We need to take the red pill and wake up. But we have science. That's what we like to say today. We are people of science and proven facts. Yeah, because science has never been wrong before, right? Now, hopefully nobody's still smoking cigarettes for your health. My point is this, folks like Thomas in first century Palestine, I don't think they needed proof in the same way that some skeptics demand it today. 
I don't think that's really what's even happening with Thomas here. Because when it comes to the supernatural, we are far more skeptical, dare I say even arrogant, about what we think we know and understand than first century Jews. They didn't believe in scientism, right? That science and the laws of physics answers all of the important questions of the universe. That's not how they operated. That wasn't their worldview. That wasn't their MO. That's because they were far more accepting of mystery and apt to believe that the God who made the universe can do some mind-blowing stuff, right? And I think many of us in here would say, I believe that too. So for them, I submit to you that the resurrection of Jesus was far more of a theological problem. That is, for them, Messiahs don't die. Jesus died, it's over, right? And also, the resurrection in the minds of Jews was a future event that happens at the end of time. So they just didn't have a category for what had happened to Jesus. Think about it. It was really a theological problem more than it was a metaphysical problem. That is, accepting that God could raise the dead. For them, it had more to do with their dashed hopes and expectations and what it meant that Jesus was raised. They had to get their minds around that. Jesus is raised. What does this mean? We're going to see today Thomas understood it on the spot. The other disciples didn't get it. We're going to push back a little bit today on this doubting Thomas business, right? Thomas is just like everybody else. He's no different than the rest of the disciples who were prone to doubt. They got to see Thomas didn't. How many of us stand with Thomas and say, I want to see too? It reminds me of a a professor I had who was working as an interim pastor, and he made some hospital visits, and He went into this room to visit a congregant, and she said, Oh, pastor, you just missed it. Jesus was here in my room floating on a pink cloud. I told you this before. His first thought, he said, was, What do they have this woman hyped up on? And his second thought was, Lord, don't you have enough pink clouds to go around? But nevertheless... Don't misunderstand me. The resurrection of Jesus was an enormous feat for the minds of these 11 disciples. No doubt, Easter defies everything that all human beings have ever known about living and dying, right? No matter what age you live in or what generation, what culture, what time period, this is a difficult one. Therefore, let's keep in mind as we now go verse by verse through John chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 24 through 29 and consider what was really going on with Thomas and what takeaways are there to challenge and encourage us today. Let's do that together. John chapter 20, I'm starting with verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Now if you have a New Living Translation... It says that Thomas was nicknamed the twin. This is what Didymus means, the twin. Was Thomas a twin? That might be our first thought. Uh, But some think that this is a literary device. That is, as we saw last week, the gospel writer, in this case John, wants us to see ourselves 
as the twin of Thomas. We are like Thomas. Now, why was Thomas not with the other disciples? We don't know. You know, maybe he was sad or angry that Jesus had died and it was all over. Maybe he was embarrassed that he fled like most of the other disciples. Maybe he wanted to grieve alone. Some of us operate like that. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe he wanted to sleep in for a change. Maybe he wanted to run a marathon. Maybe his kids had baseball or soccer practice. I don't know. People miss church for all kinds of reasons, right? Thomas wasn't there. Where was Thomas? We don't know, but he wasn't there. But think about this. Remember, this is the same guy. Flip back if you have your Bible. Look at John chapter 11, verse 16. This is the same guy who said this when Jesus was talking about having to go to Jerusalem. Right? Most folks didn't think that was a good idea. They don't like you in Jerusalem. Yet Thomas said these words, Let us go with Jesus to Jerusalem that we may die with him. Now that was Thomas. You remember Peter said something a little different. <laughs> Lord, we won't let you go. Thomas said, let's go with him. We're with you to the end, Jesus. So this shouldn't be too surprising if you think about it. The most committed people often fall the hardest. You know what I mean? You've seen this before? Maybe it's happened to you. Maybe you've witnessed it. When the most enthusiastic, radical followers fall into cynicism, doubt, disillusionment, even disbelief after they've been hurt, disappointed, duped, or feel that they've been misled. That is Thomas. Also, I think John may want us to see something here, just as Luke did with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and that is this. When you do not stay close and connected with the Lord's people, you will miss things. And no matter of reporting, I wish you would have been here. I wish you could have experienced that. I can't believe it is going to convince you. In fact, it already starts you off being a little skeptical and cynical because people had an experience that you didn't have. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so I think we can relate to Thomas. If you leave or you're not staying close to the body of Christ, you will miss experiences that God may want you to have to help you to grow and to build your faith. I see this all the time. And it really, I really don't say this for purposes of guilting or shaming, but I know I'm not alone as a pastor. You see this all the time. It's like, I wish those folks were in church this, this Sunday. I mean, so much good that happened. The message, it would have spoke to them. But where are they? Again, look at verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now the scene that Thomas missed, think about this, which we read earlier, was also, if you look at Luke 24, the same scene where the disciples on the road to Emmaus, you remember they got home, Jesus did his thing, he disappeared, and what did they do? They went right back to Jerusalem, probably trekking through the darkness. And they showed up in time to see Jesus appear to the disciples. 
Thomas wasn't there, and so it's understandable that he has a hard time believing. I mean, we can all certainly sympathize with Thomas, truly. But still, here are ten of his friends, other disciples of Jesus, all telling him that Jesus is alive, but he doesn't believe it. I mean, it really makes me wonder, what's the biggest hurdle here? His anger or that Jesus is alive? You say, anger? Why anger? Well, literally in the Greek, Thomas says this, and Melissa's going to check me. Thomas says this, unless I can forcefully stick my finger in the nail holes and plunge my hand, balo is the word, plunge my hand into his side, I will never ever believe. And then there's a double negative there, never ever believe. Folks, I can't read that as, well, gee golly guys, I mean, unless I put my finger in his, in his nail hole and, and touch his side, then I'm sorry, I can't believe. That's not what I hear Thomas saying. I hear Thomas saying, unless I can thrust my finger into those nail holes and I can plunge my hand into his side, guys, I am not going to believe. Now, now think about this. Thomas is upset. Are you getting the picture? He's a smart guy, but he won't be bamboozled again. Right? He's not going to be duped again. He wants to see just as they saw. For sure, he does. But I also think he's having a hard time with it. He believed before, and look what happened. I mean, this guy was willing to die with Jesus. He must have had strong faith, stronger than the others, because they weren't saying that. They were like, oh, hold up, Jesus. Let's not go to Jerusalem. But Thomas is like, let's go die for him, guys. He was hardcore. And he lived hardcore. And now they're saying that Jesus appeared the one time, the one time he wasn't with him. How do you think Thomas felt? Well, that has to be even more upsetting. When you say, look at verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Oh, how we've missed this. We're just so stuck on the doubting Thomas. That guy just, just quit your doubting, you know. Doubting's bad. <laughs> but look, Thomas was with him. Notice the one we have unfortunately called Doubting Thomas remained with the disciples. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because he didn't call them a bunch of head cases and leave. He hung around. Thomas stayed. He was upset, but he stayed. He had his doubts, but he stayed. He didn't leave or miss another gathering. He was determined not to. Because who knows, Jesus might show up, and he doesn't want to miss what he had missed before. And this time, he doesn't. John says, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, we've seen in these Eastern encounters that Jesus appears and disappears. Some would say that he walked through a wall. It doesn't say he walked through a wall. It just says he appeared. What is going on? (laughs) This is the resurrected body of Jesus. This is 
the, the future, God's good future, heaven and earth coming together in the body of Jesus. Jesus is the prototype of where everything is going. So his metaphysical makeup is different in some way that he can go back and forth between the curtain of heaven and earth, right? He has this kind of body that he can do that. We don't fully understand it. They didn't. They didn't even try to put it into words. In fact, when you read the Gospels and how they describe this sort of thing, I mean, it's like they don't have vocabulary for it. This is the resurrected body of Jesus. It's no surprise that the first words Jesus says is, peace be with you. Hmm. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Look, Jesus goes straight for Thomas. You know, it's as if Jesus had heard that conversation one week earlier. Rodney Whitaker in the IVP New Testament commentary writes this, Faith throughout the gospel is depicted as progressive. Think about this. Is it grows. Renewed in the face of each new revelation of Jesus. The other disciples have moved on to the next stage. But Thomas has not been able to. To not move on when Jesus calls us to do so is to shift into reverse and move away. Both believing and unbelieving are a dynamic. Believing and unbelieving. We are growing in one direction or we are growing in another direction. It is not static. Whitaker says that Jesus is challenging Thomas to move toward belief. Think about it. And then he writes this. Translated woodenly, verse 27. Look at verse 27. Translated woodenly, Whitaker says, it, it looks like this. It reads this way. Stop becoming unbelieving and get on with becoming believing. I love that. You know what else I love? This painting. Maybe you've seen it. This is the famous painting by Caravaggio, the Italian painter. It's called The Incredulity of St. Thomas. What's interesting is it was painted right before the Enlightenment. <laughs> Just gaze at that for a moment and be mindful of your feelings. Folks, isn't the Lord so accommodating? Think about what he did for Thomas. He didn't have to do that. But he did because he loved Thomas. Just as he loves his twins. And Jesus can still be accommodating if we will show up. If we will stay with his people. If we'll bring our doubts to worship and remain committed to the church through all seasons of life. 
if we'll give him something to work with and not isolate ourselves and cut ourselves off from the avenues of his grace. You know, doubt doesn't have to be a disaster. Say that with me. Doubt doesn't have to be a disaster. It doesn't have to be. Doubts are a part of faith. In fact, you can't have real faith without doubts. That's why we call it faith. It isn't built on not having evidence. We do have some evidence, but we also have mystery. And with mystery comes some doubt. And truthfully, you can't do much of anything without doubt as a constant companion. If you really think about it, we do things all the time upon, based on faith. All the time based on faith. I'm believing the words of all these people that this is good for me. And we do it all the time. So we need to hear this. There's a difference between honest doubts and making excuses for not believing and following Jesus. It is true that some people just don't want to let go of their anger or let go of their desire to do whatever they want to do, and they use that as an excuse. So we need to be honest. Some people just don't want to be responsible for the truth or repent or change. You know, we don't like to hear this because we live in this polarity and these extremes today. We've got one side of the church, or we could say the culture, saying we are terrible, wicked sinners. There's nothing good in us. We are sinners in the hands of an angry God just hanging us over like a loathsome spider over the fire. And then we've got the other side that says, oh, we're basically good. And if we could just sort out laws and make more just society, everything would be great. And both of these are extremes, and both of them are wrong. Because we're all a mixture of good and evil. Right? So we need to be honest. We need to hear this. The difference between honest doubts and making excuses some people just don't want to be responsible for the truth and have to change and align their lives with Christ to repent and to obey. I've seen people do this, folks. I had a family member who several years ago, he and I, you know, we, we talked regularly. We processed things together. I didn't hear from him for a while. And then I got a text, a text that said, I no longer believe in Jesus. I'm an agnostic. And of course, I'm thinking, what? Oh, and also he said, I don't want to talk about it. I, another friend of mine who's an author who was wrestling with her doubts in secret and she's also a friend of, of Greg Boyd's. You know Greg Boyd, a theological mentor of mine. He pastors a, a church in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I remember Greg said when she came out and said, I'm an atheist, after writing a, a Christian book. He said, why, why didn't you talk with me? Why didn't you talk with the church? She said, because I didn't want you to change my mind. I knew you would change my mind. Now, folks... Those aren't real doubts. Those are excuses. This is not how we process things in the body of Christ. So sometimes it's not really about the evidence. It's, it's about not wanting to surrender to Christ. Would you agree? Let's be honest. Then again, sometimes it is about the evidence, and we want to believe based on some good reasons, right? I was, I was once pursuing a course, PhD, in historical Jesus studies. 
And folks, I'll tell you right now, if, there, if I didn't think there was good enough evidence that the tomb was empty because Jesus was raised, I would not be a Christian. So that stuff's important. But we don't just come to the faith with our minds, we also come with our hearts. You know what Jeremiah said about the heart? It's deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? <laughs> right? We need to be honest. There's stuff going on in there that often keeps us from embracing faith. We still have so many questions, and we, we can't ever feel certain, though. Certainty is not faith, folks. And to those who view faith that way, I have good news for you. It's not about arriving at a place of certainty. It's not about arriving at a place of certainty. It's about embracing mystery and continue to work through your doubts. I like what Greg Boyd said in his book on doubt. He said, while the certainty-seeking model of faith is psychological in nature, the biblical concept is covenantal. It's about relationship. That is, while the former is focused on a person's mental state, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, um, what, what is it? I was trying to think of a movie there where somebody's like, yeah, I, I'm certain, I'm certain, I'm certain, I'm certain about this. We just kind of tell ourselves that until we believe it. It's not like that. The latter is focused rather on a person who demonstrates a commitment by how they live. Greg says, just as Thomas did, he had his doubts, but he still showed up. He had his doubts, but he was still living as a person of faith. He didn't just follow Jesus with his mind, but he also followed with his heart. That's why he was in the room a week later. Remember, he was with the disciples then, and this ought to speak to us this morning. Doubts will come, church. But we should work through those doubts like we would challenges in a relationship. You ever had challenges in a relationship? We don't abandon them when it gets tough. We work through them. We don't abandon faith when it gets hard. Rather, we press on with those questions and we press on through the challenges so that we can, in time, see the Lord and increase our faith just as Thomas did. That's what Thomas did. And Jesus gave him an Easter encounter. Then look at how Thomas responded. Thomas said to him, verse 28, my Lord and my God. Brothers and sisters, Thomas confesses what no other disciple had before. Thomas, according to John, is the first to recognize Jesus as God in the flesh. Others said he's the Son of God, he's the Messiah, but, but you know, th those terms are ambiguous. They could mean a lot of different things to a lot of people, but Thomas says, I've seen God, which is climactic when you think about it in John's gospel. You remember how he started, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God. He says the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, but we did not recognize him. And no one, he says, has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who God has made himself known. And now here we are, that has all changed. Thomas has seen God at the end of John's gospel. He knows it. So check this out. Jesus invites Thomas to catch up with the others in this new stage of faith. And what does he do? He shoots past them and heads to the top of his class. He goes from being the biggest doubter to the biggest believer of them all. He forges the way ahead. He pioneers the church with a high Christology long before any church councils would settle it.
This is beautiful. Look at verse 29. Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Church, Jesus isn't scolding Thomas. But it's, it is obvious, though, that he skips the commendation. And he thinks ahead to all of those, all of us, who will come after Thomas, his other twin, if you will. You see, John includes these words of Jesus. Did you notice? It's a beatitude. Just like Matthew 5 Here is another beatitude for all those who will come after these first disciples and their Easter encounters. He is saying to us, there is a great blessing for those who can take the evidence that they do have, short of seeing and touching the risen body of Jesus, and still believe. Those people will be blessed. Those people will be happy. Those people will know my joy and my peace and my comfort. And let's be clear, the sort of signs and wonders that we often seek, as Thomas did, they're not being rejected here. But it's important to understand that they will not always be available for us. And even when they are, as we can see throughout the Gospels, they don't in and of themselves guarantee faith. We often think they will, but people can and do explain them away especially when their heart says, I don't want to talk about it. Right? Therefore, Jesus invites us to believe on what evidence we have and receive the blessings that come from faith. Finally, let's consider some takeaways from Thomas's encounter with Jesus before we partake in communion together. Here are some takeaways. If you're taking notes, this might be helpful for you to jot down. Number one, Be honest about your doubts. Be honest about your doubts. A, don't deny them if you have them. You know, you're you're setting yourself up for a house of cards kind of faith when you deny your doubts and you think that psychological certainty is what faith is all about. It is not. So don't deny your doubts. And B, ask yourself, are my doubts the real issue or is it something else? Are my doubts the real issue I just don't want to forgive? Maybe that's it. Are my doubts the real issue, or am I just angry and don't want to let that go? Are my doubts the real issue, or do I just not want to stop having sex with my girlfriend? What is the real issue? I can't tell you, but the Lord can, if you'll listen. Number two, another takeaway, faith embraces mystery. So don't make a big deal about your doubts. You have doubts? Okay, so do I. And I'm your senior pastor. You have doubts, no big deal. You know, Matthew 28, verse 17, when Jesus ascends to heaven, he he goes out of the sight of the the disciples. The scripture says, when they saw him, they worshiped him. That's a big step for observant Jews. They all know he's God now, they're all worshiping him. But look, then it says, but some doubted. What did they doubt? It could have been anything because anything can be doubted. So they doubted, but they all still followed Jesus. They all still received the Spirit at Pentecost, and they all were a part of an explosive Jesus movement. And then number three, stay with the church. Bring your doubts to worship. And in time, 
Jesus will reveal himself to you. A church that believes that faith is about trust in the person of Christ is not alarmed by questions. Let me say that again. A church that believes that faith is about trust in the person of Christ is not alarmed by questions. We welcome them. If you have questions and doubts, fine. So do I. So do others sitting next to you. We have more reason to believe that it's true. So let's talk about it. Let's continue to worship together and follow Jesus together and trust that he will deepen our faith and guide us to the truth. Amen. Finally, may we receive the beatitude that Jesus gave us in John 20, verse 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that blessing is a promise, Grantham Church. There is a reality and experience of Christ that the world does not understand, and that's because our faith is primarily a confession, not an explanation. While we may be able to explain a lot, which I believe Christian theology has done and can do, we will always confess more than we can explain. And for disciples of Jesus, that is enough. Father, as the Apostle Peter wrote, we confess, though we have not seen him, we love him. And even though we do not see him now, we believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For we are receiving the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. To that we say, Amen. We agree, Lord. But like Thomas, we often encounter doubt and we find ourselves in need of an Easter encounter. Therefore, we pray, God, that you would come to us through your avenues of grace. Meet us in the church. Meet us in spiritual disciplines. Meet us in the scriptures and meet us in the table so that we might see you for who you really are and say together, my Lord and my God. For it's in the name of the risen Jesus we pray. Amen.